Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for coming on to Adventure with Grace today. Hey, Grace. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I know you are a minivan enthusiast, and also this is your like 55 podcast today. So I hope you are still like having the mental capacity to be on. But anyway, uh, thank you for uh, thank you so much for joining. So to start the show, I would for I would love for you to give the audience a little bit of your background. I know that you created Beat the GMAT, and you know you're a serial entrepreneur, and then you started Hustle Fun, and then you. You meet your wife at Stanford, and I, I was just listening to your LP pitch before we come on. So I listened to a bunch of other podcasts too, but I think the LP pitch was like really interesting. You talk about your family coming from Korea and all that. So what about you? Give the audience a little bit, a little bit of your background instead of like I butchering your story. <laughs> yeah, sure.、Um, I'll, I'll try to do this in a way that's actually interesting because venture capitalists have a, a, a bad habit of sharing an extra long. Introduction that no one cares about. So I think maybe there's three highlights here.、Um, I guess like、uh, may I'll start with this, which is、uh, there's a saying that I think about almost every day in my life, which、uh, I think holds true for most people in their human journey, which is that small hinges swing wide doors. And for me, what that means is that there are these moments of kindness or or something that kind of seems almost even some in some cases trivial at times that happens in your journey that swings this. Wide opportunity in life、uh, that you didn't realize was was available to you. So I guess、uh, there's a couple of lottery tickets I won in my life. The first was being born to my parents. So、uh, they had an incredibly difficult journey to get here to the United States, but、um, you know, through a lot of luck and a lot of hard work, they were able to achieve a really substantial American dream from、uh, where they came from in Korea to where they are today.、Um, So being born into that great family, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, was was awesome. They provided an excellent environment for me and my sister.、Um, they never burdened us with the trauma of their past, which was quite substantial, and allowed us to dream really big and to <laughs> study hard and like think about what we want to do in our life with our own agency. Right. So, big credit to them、uh, and giving me a lot of confidence. And then the other small hinge moment was probably the first year of college.、Uh, was lucky enough to go to Stanford. I met all the women that I'm currently growing old with. So I met my wife on the very first day of college, and I met my two other co-founders, Elizabeth and Shian,、uh, a little bit later that year. And、um, as a, and I've been hanging on to the coattails of all three of these women for the rest of my career. So that turns out to have been an incredibly smart strategy because、uh, at different times we were co-founders, co-investors, and investors in each other's businesses. I was able to, you know, start a bunch of companies, and some worked out well, some that didn't. And、uh, and now actually I'm in the business of small hinges. So I don't say that like the dr- drama of being a venture capitalist should, should be nearly the same as like you know what my parents did for me or what these incredible women in my life have done for me. But I can provide some n- knowledge, capital, knowledge, and networks to very talented founders super early on. Hopefully, be one of the first believers in these great teams through the work that we do at Hustle Funds. And you know, allow those founders to figure out their own journeys to build great things in their lives or their businesses and what have you. So、um, it's a theme that that I feel very blessed to have in my life, and that's that's a little bit about me. Totally,、um, I like that you credit all your success to all the women you met. But anyway, so let's go with like so when you like, I guess like you started. Beat the GMAT. It's like a bootstrapped company, and then now you started like Hustle Fund. I guess like, what are some lessons that you took from Beat the GMAT to 
you know, starting Hustle Fun. And also, like, for Hustle Fun, uh, as for Hustle Fun, like, from my, as an outsider, my observation for Hustle Fun is known for, um, number one, you guys um, are kind of, like, you guys have the Redwood growth um, course for the founder, and then you observe their hustle throughout the course or, like, throughout, like, getting to expert to partner with the funders and like you guys are like having a lot of really interesting content on the internet about like hustle fun you uh, created the youtube channel and like the other part is like you know hustle fun has like angel squad there is like a bunch of people start investing with you guys i wonder to give the audience a little bit overview of hustle fun and how you started like can you maybe like point out like maybe three things that's differentiating hustle fun versus like everybody else yeah sure uh i guess we could there's a few questions i'm hearing out of that so there's a little bit of lessons from the beach gmat journey um yeah. uh, should i start with that sure we can go with a, a gmat thing okay so uh, i ran that company as a bootstrap founder for nine years uh, actually with my wife and uh we grew that to actually the largest community for people applying to graduate schools and business schools uh millions of people uh worked uh, went through that that platform and it actually provided a lot of great lessons i think for the stuff that i get to do at hustle fund today so we had a really good outcome uh, uh after that that company was acquired and um but the lessons i got there was just it was one of the best like graduate school trainings and how to form an excellent mm -hmm. online community and I think born out of that was, if you look at a lot of online communities today, um, there it, there's always a huge risk that a few bad actors in that kind of community will start to deteriorate the quality of the discussion, turn it into something that feels like an attack forum or, mm -hmm. or uh, where shit like people shitting on each other just like seem to succeed the most. And you see this with a lot of platforms, frankly. But our community was different. At Beats Gym, at least, just because uh, we really emphasize kindness. And if you weren't kind, then we got you out of the platform pretty quickly. <laughs> and it's pretty subjective. But uh, that was one of the biggest lessons, which is just if you set a good tone of being really nice, it actually inspires other people to reciprocate and generally be nice and, and starts to allow people to police themselves even or other people if they notice not nice behavior. And uh, it's a little bit weird for a venture capital firm to draw lessons from that, but we really have at Hustle Fund. Um, I mentioned like, you know, at uh, very quickly, you know, this notion of capital knowledge and networks. We, our official mission at Hustle Fund is to democratize wealth through startups, startups by providing capital knowledge and networks. Capital is the money that we get to invest into early talented teams. Knowledge is actually a lot of the work that we do through our scaled media operations, the content, the articles that our team writes, the events, the communities that we serve, YouTube channel, all that stuff. That, that stuff's really important for us because we believe that if we provide a lot of great, free, accessible content out there to the community, um, you know, we can better orient people towards like making the right choices in their journey. And also it's self-serving too. Like if they decide that they want to raise capital, then maybe they'll be inspired to reach out to us. And then networks, which is at least in the context of founders, we want to always ground ourselves by this notion that we, we shouldn't assume that when you're a founder getting started or even an angel getting started, that you have a great network to begin with. You know, like I didn't have that when I got started mm -hmm. uh, growing up in Michigan. And so our network becomes yours. You know, like our privilege is yours. That, that's one thing that I really am very proud in serving founders in particular about. 
And so combining all these elements into what we do at Hustle Fund, providing capital, providing knowledge, providing networks, I think it starts to build this massive platform and community that is oriented towards serving founders as best we can. Uh, because these resources really do feed into allowing these, these, these founders to get unblocked. I'll give you an example. So if, you know, founder grace were like, Hey, Eric, I really need help <laughs> figuring out how to get like Medicaid to cover my patient services for my startup. I don't want like people who don't have money to have to pay out of pocket. My response to you would be like, I don't know how to do that, but why don't you talk to Erica, who's the chief health officer and an angel squad right now at, uh, at human healthcare, a 15 minute conversation with her probably will unblock you. Right. Um, so those kinds of connections, and it's this really wonderful uh, virtuous ecosystem. But virtuous is really important to understand because um, we make sure that there are no assholes <laughs> in this community. Uh, I'd say that the vast, vast, vast majority of founders that we get to serve are wonderful humans, and we try to vet for that. Angel Squad, we have a no no asshole rule too, <laughs> and uh, we try our best to kick out anyone that isn't serving founders or each other in a manner that we think is at a very high level in terms of etiquette and kindness. And I think for me, the large mission that we're trying to pursue is a lot of things, but I just want Silicon Valley to be kinder because we celebrate too many brilliant jerks too much, but there are actually really a lot of brilliant kind people who are just quieter that we need to celebrate too. And that needs to be the model for, I think, a successful Silicon Valley in the future. And I don't mean just the community, like the physical geography of Silicon Valley. I'm talking about the whole notion of Silicon Valley globally, just those who are involved in building technology. Totally. I got a couple questions there. Like number one, so you mentioned like building a kinder community. I feel like my first question is like, how do you build a community in general? Because nowadays, like I feel like everyone is like kind of um doing content everywhere like because of the success of a6z and yc like what i'm hearing is like everybody is doing uh creating like a massive amount of content put it on the internet and then on the other hand there is um you know i'm sure like you know i feel like community is definitely extremely important but like um not like a lot of people could put everybody into a whatsapp group but like how do you make it active and engaging i wonder in general like my question is like how do you build a community yeah I think the two words that are coming to mind right now are V words. So they're <laughs> volume and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So volume in the sense that, uh, you know, actually Harry Stebbings, I think is a really good example of this. He's the one that runs a 20 minute VC, mm -hmm. built a huge listenership. Uh, he started when he was 19 years old. And one of the things that he hammers home, which I think is true, is this idea that you never stop making content and you just consistently keep producing it. And uh, eventually people are going to figure out uh, and, and listen and become followers. So he's been doing this for almost like a decade now. If you look at even like uh, big, big influencers like Mr. Beast, uh, he's really famous about showing like what the subscriber rate looked like. It was like flat for like six or seven years. And then boom, like just like accelerated in the last like five years or whatever. Uh, so I think a, a big part of community is just um, keep producing great content you know, just like really, really high quality, well-intentioned content out there. And it, it will start to help you build that reputation as someone that actually has some sort of authority and, and draw some of that attraction. Vulnerability is the other part of it though. So I think this is something that's often missed when it comes to communities is um, there's, a, there's a Buddhist saying I once heard that I try to guide my life by, which is when you bow to the mirror, the reflected image bows back. 
And the way that I've interpreted that is the way that you just treat people around you is going to be reciprocated. So if I'm like an insecure asshole to everyone, you're going to just find that kind of behavior just bouncing back right at you left and right. But if you treat people with kindness, love, some vulnerability, showing a little bit more of your soul, then you get rewarded in kind a lot. And that's been very true in my life. So if if you kind of set this social contract of like, look, we're going to create like this, this, this community of safety. You know, we can sort of like talk about anything without judgment so long as coming from the right place in your heart and we'll help you solve your problems together. Then that's super inviting. It starts to form like a, almost a different kind of fellowship uh, amongst uh, the people who are participants in this kind of community. But that does require people to be self-selecting for some some level of emotional intelligence to want that kind of thing. So if you can combine these ingredients together, which is you keep producing great content, um, there's lots of you know fast reactions and responses to each other too. But you do this with like uh, some vulnerability behind it, then you have the ingredients. I think of a very sustainable kind of movement at that point. When I guess like another you mentioned about like the volume and vulnerability. So you post a lot of great content on Twitter and then you have like a great following there. I wonder like if you're starting today, how would you build your like online presence? Did did you start it with Twitter or did you start it with like your YouTube channel? Like how would you get started? And then I wonder the other part is like, you know, how does that translate into great investment because like i was listening to your talk about like pitching to lps and i wonder like um what is like the i guess like what are like let's say a couple of things that you want to achieve or accomplish before pitching to lps after you know obviously you have a great following yeah sure um a couple of questions in there so i guess like starting with uh like how i would get started today so I didn't get started with for Hustle Fund. We I didn't really focus on Twitter at all, actually. Um, so we launched Hustle Fund six years ago, and um, I didn't have very much of a Twitter following. I think I had like less than a thousand people at that point, and I didn't really care about this platform. But then, like, I kind of got sucked into it because I noticed actually, wow, tech Twitter is very active here. Like a lot of people whom I admire or decision makers are involved in this community, even though it's very insulated. So. Once I understood that, and then uh, that that actually was a an important unlock actually for for my life and, and the work that we do at Hustle Fund. Uh, if I were to get started today, I'm not sure if Twitter is the right platform necessarily. Um, there there are newer platforms that are probably designed for more virality. If you're more into like the long form blogging, perhaps a Substack or Beehive might be a, a, a decent place to start to build like a really good newsletter audience. I might want to focus on one of those platforms or Maybe if like short form content's your thing, like a TikTok could be good. Although I don't really quite see the connection yet <laughs> between like TikTok and you know investor deal flow and things <laughs> like that just yet. But it's it is a addressing a population of primarily younger builders that that might be really important and and where you where you can find a lot of success, frankly, in, in designing and building a great followership there. Twitter's cool. Um, I actually do have misgivings about the platform, especially in the last few years. I think it's actually become more toxic. And I do think that it's sort of falling prey into some of the mistakes I've mentioned earlier in my comments, which is just that, you know, if you start to reward those who are punching down and are really mean and like you're sort of feeding that kind of beast, then it, it creates a long term, very undesirable kind of toxicity, I think, in the platform, which turns off newer people to Twitter today. But I think to the greater point of just like building some sort of audience of whatever platform is. Uh, 
is authentic or actually natural to you is important. It doesn't matter whether it's YouTube, TikTok, or Twitter, so long as it's a platform where you're just excited to make content for it and actually speak to your audience through it, then I think just pick one and then try your best to just consistently produce great content there to get started. Um, what was the second part of that question? <laughs> I kind of blacked out. How do you how do you raise your like? Oh, can you just walk us through the journey of like you guys raising Hustle Fund? I know that you mentioned yeah. like at one point your co-founder was pitching to the optometry people. Yeah. But anyway, so like tell us about like what was the you know you gave the first pitch in your Zoom session before, but I wonder like what's your first pitch like um, yeah. for the audience who don't know? And then yeah, like, yeah. what is the journey like, you know, now you guys are fund three, I believe. Like, yeah. We're yeah. Fund three. So like, what, like, what's a, I guess like, what is a, does it, does it got easier? Does it got harder? Like what does a, you know, fund one, two, three look like? Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Know. So um, thanks for that reminder. So um, when it comes to fund one, like we didn't have any real audience. Uh, Elizabeth had more of a popular audience, but it wasn't very big at that point. Like maybe, 10,000 people are following her like on one and um, no one was following me. So uh, the, the whole community part or like our popularity on social media was not present when we raised fund one. So fund one was a, a back in 2017, an 11 and a half million dollar fund that we ultimately raised. But a couple of things were problematic at the time. Actually. So one was this notion of pre-seed, which is this very, very early tranche of early capital Uh there weren't any real pre-seed funds, maybe like Charles Hudson's precursor and like a handful of others were, were focusing on this. So it was like less than five real funds doing this stuff. So teaching the asset class was a problem because a lot of our LPs had never heard of it. That was part one. Part two was we didn't, you know, me and Elizabeth, when we got this thing going, like we, we have pedigree, like we worked at nice places, went to good colleges and all stuff, but we didn't have the right pedigree. We weren't like ex Sequoia or ex Excel, mm -hmm. you know, like we weren't like principals, like starting our own fund there, which is, was the typical way at the time that people would launch their own franchises as a VC firm. So, you know, we were getting quite dismissed for that. Um, a lot of other factors too, like when we were pitching, Elizabeth was pregnant. There's a lot of like sexism, frankly, of just like, how are you going to manage being a mom? And, you know, like bullshit questions like that, that we heard. So um, the way that we got through that, in the spirit of the V's that I mentioned before was volume. We said mm -hmm. we were going to brute force this, this fundraise. And we knew that we needed minimum $10 million to get going to just start the concept of hustle fund. So mm -hmm. we will talk to as many people as possible. So over the course of nine months, we scheduled 700 meetings with anyone who would be willing to talk to us. Some of them were family offices and institutions. They all said no to us. A lot of them were high net worths and then they weren't all technologists. Like some of them were neighbors, members of church, friends. Uh, we just took money from anyone. The smallest check we took was $10,000 at, at one point. Mm -hmm. uh, just whatever would brute force us. And 700 meetings led to 70 people who said yes to us. And then we can get going. So our friend Charles Hudson actually gave us really great advice. He's like, you never, if you're going to be a VC and, and raise fund one, two things have to be true. One is that you never run out of leads. You just are always finding new people to pitch, even if they're very non-obvious. And the second thing he said was you never run out of hope because like when you get like your 500th no and you've only raised like $1 million so far, it really does mess with your brain. <laughs> but like, if you really believe in what you're doing, you just gotta keep going, keep going, keep going. Your pitch does get better. And then hopefully the right kinds of people will say yes, who understand what you're trying to do. 
what does your pitch look like? So are they like, I'm sure they're aware of your pitching them, but like, I always hear like, okay, like ask for advice. So you'll get money. But like, I don't really know how to, I just like, if I just randomly reach out to you, like, and then on, on LinkedIn, I'm like, Hey, uh, you know, can you give me some advice for my fund? And then you're like, automatically no, because you're like, this person's asking me for money. That's what I, my assumption to people are and then sometimes i got into a meeting and then people just start pitching and then i'm like are you serious right now like i don't <laughs> even know what i'm getting into so yeah. i wonder like how do you navigate these kind of situation and then like what are the i guess like what is like an effective pitch because i've i i constantly hear people like oh we have this really uh cool niche but like actually they looking at their investment they don't really invest in that niche or like they don't have a track record or i'm not i'm like i'm not like an active lp or anything it's just like i hear friends pitch or whatever so i wonder right. how do you like what does an effective pitch look like and then when you mentioned like the 70 people 700 turn into 70 people that's like a pretty good rate i feel like that's i don't know like 10 percent people convert <laughs> yeah. that's like not bad and um yeah, like I'll, I'll stop there and then we'll get to maybe how do you find the 700 people to pitch later? Yeah. <laughs> because that's really like that's a lot of people to pitch. It is. But uh, so I'll try to touch on a couple of these points. Um, let's talk, let me focus on the never lose hope part of it. So uh, I grew up in Michigan in a part where there was actually a lot of Mormons. Uh, so a bunch of my friends were Mormons. So if you're not familiar with the, the Mormon church, like uh, what's typical is that the boys after after high school at some point we'll go on like a two-year mission to a different country and then they're going to try to go out and you know convince and teach like you know the merits of the mormon church and try to see whether they can bring some more people into the church right and like some of these places they go to are quite foreign or even sometimes a little bit scary so i remember like one time i was hanging out with these guys uh it was like when they're back for, for some sort of break and i was like yo, let's, let's get real here. Like, this sounds like it's totally shitty, <laughs> right? Like you're basically like talking to people to try to convince them to join your church. And like, I'm sure 99.9% .9 of them were like, go fuck yourself or something, right? Like, so how are you like doing this, right? Like, this is, is this terrible, as terrible as I think it is. 100% of the reaction was like, this is the best experience I've ever had in my life. And when you dug into like why they felt that way, is because they were in the business of 100% believing that they're trying to save the life of the person that they're speaking to. Let's set aside like any kind of, you know, discussion about like, you know, whether you agree with what that church does or whatever faith like you have, but like, I really admired the fact that they grounded themselves of like, this is something that I feel like is good news and good for people to hear about. And even if just one person in the next two years says yes to me, then it was entirely worth it. And I thought that was such a great way to think about the work that they were doing. And it made me like almost like envious that they got to have this kind of opportunity. Now, I'm never going to try to paint some sort of heretical metaphor that like the work that we do as VCs and what we sell as nearly is, is like important as like convincing someone to like join a faith. Like <laughs> it's, it's probably very different planes is my guess. Uh, but where I start from when I talk about hustle fund people is a place of, I have really exciting news to share with you, <laughs> right? Like I deeply believe in what this product is for LPs, what it is for our founders, and actually even the purity of our mission that we're trying to do at Hustle Fund. And uh, so I'll talk to anyone about Hustle Fund and I'll feel excited to keep sharing the same pitch over and over and over again, because it's exciting for me. 
uh, that's what makes the 700 a little bit easier. Now, in terms of just, um, uh, sorry, can you remind me again, like the, the core part of this question? Because again, I keep blacking out here. <laughs> oh, totally understand. It's yeah. like, I don't know, 9 a.m. Like everyone is like brain dead by now, especially after your three podcasts. But anyway, so um, how do you never run out of leads? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like seven hundred people. Seven hundred people you have to pitch to, and then you have yeah. to get seven hundred people uh, to invest. Like I, I don't know. Like how do you get to seven hundred yeah, people to pitch to in general? Yeah, let me let me touch on the earlier question too. It's sort of coming back to me uh, a little bit here. So, uh, how do you get to seven hundred? But also, um, yeah. Well, actually, let's just focus on that one. There's there's lots to discuss on that one. So never run out of leads, right? Um, uh, so the first thing that you do is you go on all of your social media, uh, your LinkedIn, your Facebook, whatever it is, and you try to figure out who are the richest people that I know. Oh my God. <laughs> so, so the first step We're was- We're getting we real at, here. Yeah, we we looked at our, like we went, me and Elizabeth went to Stanford, so it's a rich kid's school. <laughs> and like uh, a bunch of people- Just everyone on your Facebook is a billionaire. Right? I, I mean, a lot of our friends work in tech, right? So some of them at this point were like successful CEOs and all that stuff. So we're just like, hey, I'm starting a fund. Uh, can you give me money? Right. <laughs> and then, uh, so it, it was like the worst pitch ever. It was just like, just give me your money. Right. And then, um, fortunately a good number of them said yes, because you know, we've known them for our lives and, um, they, they trusted that we'd be responsible enough stewards of their capital, or at least try very hard to like, like, you know, design really good outcomes mm -hmm. for them. So we got like two and a half million dollars like instantly. It was like, yeah, we're on a roll. <laughs> right. And then like, and then we hit this wall of just like, um, you know, okay, we're out of rich friends. Right. So, so what are we going to do? And then the next thing that we did was, which was a mistake was like, we, we, we talked to our rich, our the people said yes to us and we're like, Hey, uh, we need to raise more money. So here is a forwardable blurb of what hustle fund does. Can you send this to anyone who would be a good fit to become an investor? Right. Because we didn't want to come in cold. Like we actually believe this industry is designed around warm introductions, which I'm very mixed about. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> Excuse me. And then uh, so we we emailed all of our people who committed to us and then we sent them our blurb and said, like, just send us anyone who would be a mm -hmm. good fit. And mm -hmm. the response was like zero, nothing. Mm -hmm. No one responded. And mm -hmm. the problem with that, which is like a real problem that founders feel, too, when they make this mistake, which is very common, is that you're putting too much analysis paralysis <laughs> on mm -hmm. the part of your mm -hmm. investor. Like, uh, if you if I receive something that's like oh crap like you know who should I send this to how many like should I like figure out twenty people or one it, it's just like mm -hmm. if you create, too much work too, yeah you're creating too much work so people don't do it so then we got a little smarter we're like wait a second like no one's responding to us let's try this again and then we said here's our blurb grace can you send this to one person mm -hmm. just one who would be a perfect fit for mm -hmm. hustle fund mm -hmm. and in general the response rate was like 90% at that point. It got like much, much higher. And normally what Grace would do is send this to the richest person that she knows. <laughs> so mm -hmm. like pretty quickly you're up leveling into like high net worth to now like family offices, which like is, is this a like very shadowy world of mm -hmm. ultra high net worth families um, that do not want to be discovered. But if you come in through warm introduction, then um, you know, that's your way that you get into this network. And then I think the last thing too that we did at Hustle Fund that was really effective is we threw a lot of parties. So um, mm -hmm. we would host parties. We would invite our investors or those who are committed and say, like, can you bring one investor friend to like one of our parties? 
And then uh, we would give it a little bit of a quick pitch, like five minutes. There'd be great tacos and margaritas. And then that mm-hmm. night, I'd go through the guest list and email every single one of the new people that showed up and say, like, can we schedule some time to talk about Hustle Fund? So I remember the earlier part of your question that I'll just respond to too, which is, um, you know, how do you pitch? The, like, how do you set up expectations for the pitch? I think you have to be really explicit that like, I want to tell you about like what we do at Hustle Fund to see if there's a, is a, is a fit here. You can't like um, bait and switch people. You'd be like, hey, like you're cool. Let's just like, you know, hang out. And then you're suddenly like asking them for money. Like mm-hmm. that that's, you're going to burn that lead, right? You, you got to mm-hmm. have a little bit of like a self uh, selection bias prompting of just like, are you interested in like learning a little bit more about Hustle Fund? Like, you know, Grace mm-hmm. is one of our investors. Like just, just want to see whether you want to hear about it. Mm-hmm. And then um, actually a, another earlier question you asked is like, does it get easier? <laughs> it gets a lot easier. <laughs> so like mm-hmm. by the time you're like um, fund three or four, if you have results that are positive, then um, hopefully you're in a place where the LPs are coming to you. And mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're just starting to get into that zone, but it's, it's, we never should assume and rest in our laurels that we have to stop finding great LPs ourselves. And um, so it's always work. How do you like kind of figure out what's your unique, like unfair advantage? Because I feel like right now everyone um, are doing kind of similar things like, you know, doing a podcast, like newsletter, uh, you know, YouTube channel, like, like, I mean, or like just like literally everyone's like trying to broadcast themselves that's like becoming a trend in silicon valley um and obviously you guys built like a really strong brand i hear it from like from my perspective what make you guys successful like in the hindsight is kind of like you guys have created this community of people that kind of like eventualize for you guys and uh even just like i go to like a random conference someone is wearing like a um hustle phone like jacket or whatever so but i wonder like before you get there, like, what were the original thought process on, like, how do we build an ad for Hustle Fund? Yeah, yeah. So I think, thank you. So I think the there's a few things that I think allowed us to get differentiated out of the gate. The first was our funds model. So we have an unusual model where we start with a very fast, small $50,000 check. We work with a team on a growth project for usually about eight weeks. We have a school that you mentioned before called Redwood School. It's like it teaches customer acquisition and sales. And then mm-hmm. Uh, in a subset of cases, after we figure out like whether this is a team that understands how to hustle, operate really well, has a market that's exciting, mm-hmm. we'll concentrate much larger checks subsequently into that subset. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, that kind of model was weird when we introduced mm-hmm. it. Like no one really understood it. So from like a funds deployment perspective, that was a bit unusual. Uh, so that that allowed us to have like a little bit of intrigue. I think the second part though is um, I'll sort of, I'll tell you like what. There's two things I think that we got kind of right. One was actually relaying our mission at Hustle Fund. And I, I talk about capital knowledge and networks a lot, but there's actually a simpler way of saying this, which is actually like the rallying cry at Hustle Fund, which is that great hustlers look like anyone and come from anywhere. We say this all the time because we believe it. It's this idea mm-hmm. that like, you know, you can be obscenely talented and look like anyone. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether you have a Stanford degree or not, or, you know, like grew up rich or not. Like there are going to be people all over the planet that have the capability of building amazing businesses. And we want to be a part of that journey, regardless of where you come from or what you look like. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a, it's a very positive message of inclusivity. And I think that also is 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 attractive and why you see people wearing our t-shirts all over the world or getting our little plushy dolls that we sell because it kind of represents i think um a very positive view of what where hopefully our industry can head 
but the last thing is this grace this is gonna like this is like the secret okay here's what differentiates us is our official voice guide at hustle fund which is as follows imagine a 15 year old girl mm-hmm. who is super sarcastic but a closet idealist i'm gonna say that again imagine a 15 year old girl who is super sarcastic but a closet idealist this is the official voice of hustle fund and if you mm-hmm. actually look at our website <laughs> look at our mm-hmm. tweets look at any content we produce Mm-hmm. It starts to make more sense of like, oh, I can see a 15-year-old girl who's really sarcastic, but like very idealistic saying mm-hmm. something like this. Why do mm-hmm. we have a persona like this? The first reason is it is authentic to our team. You might be looking at a 42-year-old Korean man in a garage right now. You're actually <laughs> looking at a 15-year-old girl who's super sarcastic and a closet mm-hmm. idealist, right? The second thing too is we are really f- like, we like to make fun of ourselves, <laughs> We, we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we take the work really mm-hmm. damn seriously. And I think like just combining those kinds of authentic ingredients of what our team represents, mm-hmm. it does naturally make us a bit more attractive to people because like we're the kinds of folks that you just want to hang out with and like get a drink or, you know, just like chill out with without judgment. And that's kind of the vibe that we're kind of producing. And at the end of the day, I'll just share this like side note. Like when I proposed to my wife, I didn't say like, would you, do you, will you marry me? I didn't say that. I said, do you want to grow old with me? And I, the reason why I like that question for, she said, yes, by the way, is that like, uh, <laughs> you know, I actually think about this question a lot with everything now, like my friends, I think about it with founders. I think about it with our LPs, because if we start this journey together, we have to assume it's going to be like 10 years at least <laughs> before like results happen. Mm-hmm. At that point, I will be 52 years old. My kids will be grown up. You know, like you will have milestones, like more babies or other things happening in your life. Who knows what it is, right? And um, doing it with people that you are excited with, not just professionally, but also personally, I think is ideal, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of, I think, how we position our brand is just like, you want to grow old with us. Like we're cool ass people and you're cool ass people and let's let's just do this together. Um, so I think that's something that's often missed in this industry is just like a focus on like, what is my authentic brand? Right. It's just like, like, what do I represent? How do I feel most natural? What are the kinds of people that like are going to, when I bow to that mirror and and I get reciprocated back that I want to see coming in my funnel or my door. Right. And then if you can figure that out, then, then I think you can, you can build a great community around yourself. I got a couple questions. Number one is like, what is like the zero to one for community building? Like, let's say um, after you and Elizabeth started the fund, I don't know if you guys built the community before the fund or after the fund or like just like last year, like not last year, like last few years through like and just got like, what does a community building look like from zero people to like five people to like 10 people to like now you guys have like thousands of people in like the Andrew squad or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. You guys are uh, kind of like the Andres and Juarez on LinkedIn because everyone's an Andrew Squad member. But anyway, so uh, how does it start? So, uh, okay, I'm just so there's three of us that started this fund me, Elizabeth, and Sheehan. Sheehan came like six months after us, but she's a, a, an Eagle Share co founder with us now. So I'm just thinking about like the days when it was just me and Elizabeth, like the, the six months before even Sheehan showed up. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, what, what did we do right? I think the first part was when we began Hustle Fund, we knew that the only way that people are going to pay attention to us 
was, well, let me just put it this way. I'm, I'm going to reshape this conversation to, to know a little bit more about me and my Elizabeth. So I had my career success in building a media business ultimately with BPG Matt and that worked mm -hmm. out well. Elizabeth also had a media company. She was in the newsletter monetization space, which she had a, a pretty successful exit. So, and then together we started like a big conference company that was quite successful that turned into an enormous business actually. Uh, and then, so we come from media backgrounds and we, we knew that like, you know, if we're going to try to make a mark in this industry, then we are going to have to be really, really damn good about producing excellent content. So it just started on day zero with let's just start producing really, really great content mm -hmm. and lots of it. <laughs> so mm -hmm. when, when you begin a community from scratch, I think there's three parts that make a great community. And this is actually a direct lesson from B2G, Matt. The first mm -hmm. is great quality. <laughs> so like you don't just put any like crap out there and just pe expect people to engage. Like you got to invest in, especially in the beginning in, in building like I think a lot more long form content that matters. And the way that Elizabeth did this was through her blogs. Her ElizabethYen.com blog is excellent. And she spent a lot more time in the beginning doing that. So there's, there's quality of content. The second part is actually speed. So mm -hmm. What I learned in B2G Matt when I was getting started with this thing, I had this like big forum that people mm -hmm. were there and, and it was just me. So mm -hmm. whenever Grace came on, had a question, if she somehow discovered the site, I would try within one hour responding mm -hmm. to her, her question with a great high quality response. And when I was in my 20s for a year and a half, I had a 24 hour on call system where anytime a new message came in, it would beat my phone and I would stop whatever I was doing wake up from my slumber or whatever, and just respond to that question within one hour. It was exhausting. <laughs> and uh, I'm not saying you need to do this here, but like, and nor does it have to be in that kind of like close feedback loop. But if you, if you focus on like, you respond in a re reasonably fast period of time with a great response, you start to condition people wanting to engage with you more because mm -hmm. they know that the more that you, they ask, the more that you feed them back really great results. And then the last was a, a principle at a BTG, the most important one that we apply to Hustle Fund is called be a hippie. <laughs> so mm -hmm. what that meant for me was like, if I'm gonna, if we're gonna try to create a community of kindness, then you also need to develop a persona that's a little bit like 10 or 20% kinder than you actually are now. So I'm actually someone that really love, write, loves writing. Mm -hmm. I studied a lot of, I did a lot of writing in college and I considered being mm -hmm. an English major. So I detest, absolutely detest terrible grammar. I hate multiple exclamation points. I hate little smiley faces and emoticons and all that stuff. I, all that stuff I really don't like. Yet, I use it all the time. And the Same. reason why is because like, uh, if you adapt that kind of vernacular that's very positive, it just gets reciprocated in kind, right? So I I'm a nice guy, but like online, I seem nicer than I actually am, I'd say. Like I'm like 10% nicer online than I am <laughs> in real life. So the, if you combine those kinds of ingredients, it's like, it's kind, it's safe, it's fast response, and then it's high quality content, you start to build that flywheel. And if you're going to start this from day zero, like some of the ways that I'll probably get this going is just like, I would begin engaging with other people on Twitter, let's say, say like, oh, like Grace, you have this like really great perspective on AI or something. Like, let me like respond with like a perspective on this kind of thing. And you can start to build like a little bit of followership there and, 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 and gather some, um, some great community around you. But, but that's how we got started. It was just like applying these principles I know, knew worked from our previous community. And then as that builds, um, you know, people start to talk. Uh, the net promoter grows. 
And then more people want to refer uh, folks into to Hustle Fund. At this point, we have a thousand deals per month that we're processing at Hustle Funds, um, and then uh, over one thousand eight hundred Angel Squad members, uh, um, a lot of LPs, uh, and thousands of people showing up in our in our events. And it's it's the the flywheel has, is sort of now virtuously feeding itself. I'd say. Mm, okay, so basically, you were talking about like building a flywheel by creating. Great content at a really fast speed, um, and like essentially like responding people with smiley faces and then twenty percent kinder than who you are in real life. Um, I wonder, like number one is like what is great content? How do you define if a content is great? I think at the very end of the day, like you know, okay, twenty thousand years ago, Grace, if we were early humanoids, I guess, back then, or sapiens, whatever, like, when we ended the day after our hunt or get berry gathering or whatever, the clan would sit around like a big fire, eat together, and share stories of what happened. And I'm of the belief that humans have not really evolved that much since then. So great content is always rooted in excellent storytelling, right? Even pitching, like, if you're going to pitch something, it has to be rooted in great storytelling. And the best storytelling is rooted in vulnerability in my mind. Right, like, uh, um, so, like, when I start my pitch, I usually begin by talking about my parents and just, like, the struggles that they went through and why, like, some of the motifs that they've carried through their lives actually applies to my life today and the work that we get to do at Hustle Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, just begin with, like, uh, some of that, that vulnerability, I think, is, is something that's really attractive for a lot of reasons. If I were to break, like, dissect that a little bit, it's like, one, it makes for a better story. When it, like, you're drawing something from a personal well in your in your in your heart that like people don't often see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the second thing too is it presents a sense of security too, of just like wow, like you know, Grace must be a very secure person if she can talk about like these things that happened to her in her life, good or bad, right? In in a way that like you don't often see people talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I think has a, an enormous attraction, right? And, and also I think the third thing too, is like when you can get comfortable with the vulnerability of your own story, your own narrative, um, um, it, it actually is reciprocate. Yeah. Kind of the same thing. It's just like, you just get so much back. Like people reciprocate and share their story. I'll give you an example of this, which is like, you know, one thing that I'm getting, I get kind of public about is I suffer from a chronic illness. I have inflammatory bowel disease, right? So it's incurable. And what I've learned about talking about chronic illnesses is that a lot of people are suffering. I'd say that easily one third of all the people that I've ever met have some sort of chronic illness that they're silently suffering from. And then when you open the floodgates, talk about this is how I like handle my disease. They come back at you. say like, man, like, you know, I can never talk about this kind of stuff with anyone. And, and I have this kind of thing going on too. And then we can share a little bit of that, that commonality and fellowship, share trade advice, you know, understand each other as humans a little bit better as a result. So um, I think it just, you got to start from there. It, it's, that's what gets people attracted to, to you. It's just like, you know, you're open about sharing who you are. Totally. Um, I feel like what does that translate into pitching to founders or to LPs? Because I like that you <laughs> shared with your parents' story at the beginning. That kind of makes sense. But like sometimes like we only have like one pit, one minute or like some very short yeah. amount of time to grab people's attention. If I started with my 
chronic illness, like people may not know where I'm going with my pitch. So I think that's great. I feel like that's a making like when you're getting to know someone more, like I feel like those are definitely very relatable topics to, you know, build trust. Um, I wonder, like, you know, what does your women at pitch look like now for, you know, two LPs, like, who doesn't yeah. have one? So the vast majority of people that I'm ever going to pitch are going to say no to me, right? Um, and that's fine. I, I never want to force anyone to be a part of a puzzle fund if it's just not the right fit for them for whatever reason. But when I go into a pitch, I don't actually think ever, like, I'm going to talk to Grace to get her money. That's not my goal at all especially for the first meeting. Now, if, if it's going well, then I will think like, I'm going to get her money. And I'm like, I'm going to figure out how to do that in, in a way that's like aligned with our missions and like everyone's going to feel good about it. But like in the first pitch, I have a single goal. It's just like, can I get this person vulnerable? That's it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and normally uh, the reward there is like, if I lead with some vulnerability, it usually does get reciprocated. I'd say 95% of the time. And the very, the very smallest thing that I can walk away with that I think is amazing is a great story, right? Like fun, like setting aside like hustle fun, like the thing that I love, I, I really, really do love people. I, I think that everyone's journey is just so fascinating to hear about whether you're famous or not, or whether you've done a lot or have done little, like everyone has struggled to survive to get to this point. And there's something that we can learn from everyone. And I also do hold to the hope that humanity is inherently good, right? Like I, I don't, I don't want to subscribe. I refuse to believe that like there's like a, they were all at a race to the bottom and they're just going to destroy each other. I just can't, I can't accept that. So when I go into that first pitch, the goal is never to close. Mm-hmm. Like the goal is like, let's try to expose our souls to each other and see whether we vibe with each other and share some good stories. And if we find that the values are aligned, then we can get to like the next step, which is just like, you know, does it seem like a good fit for hustle fund? And probably the biggest mistake for early pitches that a lot of VCs are making, or even the founders, is that they're rushing, right? There's like, look, I got my clothes coming up in like three months and all that stuff. Sometimes that's the reality. And maybe you do need to play a little bit of a hard sell at that point. But it's not a good position to be in. What's better is just to feel really good comfort with the human on the other side of the table or the Zoom screen first. And then naturally sort of cascade into like, you know, whether it makes sense to ever participate as an LP within our fund. So, you know, when I'm I'm actually, I lead fundraising at Hustle Fund. And I probably do five pitches a week, even though we aren't technically fundraising right now. When, I, when we are fundraising, hopefully it's 10 to 20 a week. Mm-hmm. And the the number one thing I always want to establish is just like, there's never a rusher. Like if it takes you a couple of years to get to know us, like that's what it takes. That's fine. And if it doesn't ever even turn into an investment, but we can become buddies, that's great too. Like that, that's just my style. It's just like, mm-hmm. I, I just think it takes years sometimes, minimum one year, minimum six months at the very least for someone to get really comfortable with what we do at Hustle Fund. And that's the process. So uh, that means that you have to fundraise for the next fund, but also the fund mm-hmm. after that and the fund after that with the individual that you're talking to and just be patient, right? So um, I think that's that's sort of a mindset that that I would really encourage those who are early managers to, to consider is just like, stop making it so transactional <laughs> and make it more about just mm-hmm. like establishing like the humanity that's shared between us first and foremost. 
and also celebrate the fact that when people say no, you can still find like friendship out of that too, which gets rewarded in weird ways too. Sometimes like sometimes someone like Grace would say like, I can't ever invest in you, but we become buddies. And then, you know, some sort of other weird blessing happens as a result. I'm not even talking about monetarily. It's just like, I'm just thinking about this one person who once helped me out really, really a lot on just like, um, a health issue that I was sort of like talking about. I was just like, ah, man, like I, I really need to dial in my nutrition a little bit better. And then she had some really great advice for me. I'm like, man, what a, like you've really changed my life. And I, I just, I'm so grateful for that. Things like that. Totally. I wonder, I, I really like that. Number one is like, I, I guess like who is on your personal board of advisors since like you guys have like navigate, navigate like both like you know building a font to personal brand building to like basically having a pretty decently successful career i wonder like who is on your personal board of advisors yeah. um yeah we'll start from that i'm like yeah I'm sure sorry i have so many questions at once no thank you grace i really appreciate uh, all this stuff though so thank you for holding space with me like this um uh well i guess from the fun side we have our own lpac we have these wonderful mm -hmm. like uh investors in our fund that we we sometimes uh, call on for personal advice my personal board board of advisors I'm lucky to have a, a, a pretty decent size like community of people around me that I can ask for help for. But the person that, that really comes to mind is just one person. It's uh, one of my, my biggest inspirations and my mentor, Julie Brush. So Julie is the founder of a legal headhunting business in Silicon Valley that is enormously successful. And I was lucky enough to be her intern uh, when I was 20 years old in college. So this is tw 22 years ago. Still running the business, still crushing it. And uh, what I'm always admired about Julie is like, she just is so talented as a manager and running her company. Her emotional intelligence is like through the roof to genius levels. And she still finds ways of like being so present with like her family and her kids and all that stuff. So much of what I try to model in my life was like what I've observed about Julie. And um, so, you know, whenever we do get together, you know, I, I just, you know, want to understand like what's happening in her life and I share what's happening in my life. And we just kind of have a very natural conversation. It's not very transactional at all. Um, but I think like having those kinds of relationships of people whom you just find to be like heroes of like how they've conducted their lives is so important. And it doesn't have to be like a lot of work. It's just like, you know, maybe a couple of coffees per year even, and that's enough for us. But um, yeah, that's if Julie, if you're listening to this on LinkedIn or Grace's being a follower on Grace's uh, <laughs> podcast, here, it's like I really appreciate you, and so much of my life is modeled after what I think you've showed me. You could do. I'm totally gonna stalk her later. But anyway, so what do you identify as your unfair advantage that you apply into your business or life? I'll go with kindness. I think that like, you know, I okay, we kind of joked earlier, like, you know, my person online is like maybe 10% kind, but I do consider myself to be a pretty nice person. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, the really great thing about kindness is that, well, you know, it's weird because like in the cutthroat nature of business, maybe kindness can be perceived as weakness. It's like, I can roll over this person, you know, take advantage of them, manipulate them because they're kind. That's not true. I mean, like I, I know kind people who are really, really tough. Right. I, I consider myself to be sort of in that category, too. Uh, my wife is in that category. She's way tougher than me. You don't you never want to fuck with her. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but like uh, but, uh, 
you know, the thing that's really great about kindness is just like when you come in a place of just like, I don't want to like have a, a transactional agenda. Like, you know, it's not about like me just like screwing you over to get some sort of better deal. I don't, I don't operate like that. It's more about like, you know, understanding your needs and trying to serve them as well as I can, but also respecting what I need. Right. Uh, it's a really nice place to do business. But the beautiful thing about kindness is it just sometimes takes one act of service to start to inspire someone else to be kind. And like, one of my favorite ways to sometimes practice this is like, given like the volume of people that follow us, we have our share of haters and trolls and they come at us pretty hard and say very threatening things to us. Every once in a while, I'll start to engage with them and I'll shower them with kindness. I'd be like, you know, let's, what's, what's behind those words? Like what's going on in your life? You know, like you sound like you're, you're kind of hurt right now, which is, you know, maybe manifesting this kind of anger. We'll have a little bit of direct message exchange and then they'll hopefully start to open up a little bit. Usually they do about what's going on in their life and then they'll apologize and then we kind of move on. And I think that hopefully it inspires them to also to think about like being a little bit more kind to others now in the future. Right. It's just like a tiny little act of kindness there. But when, when people get to engage with us, hopefully like the reason why it's, it, it's an advantage for us is like, if we are authentically kind people on the team, which I am very proud of, I think our team is, then it also immediately feels safe. Right. Of just like, we're not here to screw you over. We're not here to be ultra transactional. And it's a simple thing that is not celebrated enough. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to be part of the hustling community, which is now getting kind of large, you're going to find a lot of kind people. And I think we're starting to inspire a lot of these small hinges that are swinging lots of wide doors of hopefully getting more populations kinder in this market. When it comes to like picking deals, because in the end of the day, you're running a fund, right? So at the beginning, how did you, like, what does your portfolio look like? And then what was the strategy back then? And then what is the strategy now? Since like you guys have like are seeing 1000 deal per month. Like I yeah. feel like it's a good and bad thing as like, it's good as like you see, like you have a, a lot of volume. And, but like, on the other hand, it's like, you are going to take a long time to filter out like just so many deals and to the good ones. So I wonder what is like, your portfolio look like at the beginning when you first started the fund and then what does it look like today? Yeah. The philosophy of the fund is largely unchanged since we started. It's this notion that like hustle is the best leading indicator of success in teams. Mm -hmm. And the way that you find that is by working with teams. Again, we start with that fast, small check, work with a team on a growth project. That's when we can get a much better sense of witnessing your hustle, but also the team can witness our hustle to really understand whether there's alignment here and then mm -hmm. concentrate bigger checks later on into that subset of true hustlers working in good markets. So we have 500 portfolio companies across three funds right now. We uh, invest in 250 companies per fund, 84 companies per year, basically, is, uh, is the average pacing. You mentioned like it's getting harder. The answer is it's not. I mean, like with the volume of deals that we have, we have really excellent processes for selecting for very specific criteria, combination of valuation, sectors that we care about, geographies that we care about the geographies part by the way if anyone's listening is like we pretty much invest globally except for like china and russia and much of europe <laughs> so if you're like uh, outside of those markets like definitely like you know you have a chance of engaging with us um so like this the, there's always the the consistency our ability i think to con to consistently find like the same number of like really good like 100 companies per month out of a thousand and like i think we're doing a good job of isolating that and that that's pretty consistent um and then i guess like our process for identifying hustle and sharing what we can offer to our founders has just been the same throughout. So 
I had a great conversation, this guy named Rohan Gupta yesterday. He's a rising star at a great fund of funds and investment shop called Next Legacy. He and I became recent buddies, but we've been able to get really deep with each other. He said something to me that really inspired me. He said, like, you know, at the end of the day, don't focus on outcomes, just trust the process. And that's something that, like, I've been saying a lot to myself, actually, in the last few days, like, trust the process, trust the process. And I really trust our process, <laughs> which is just like, you know, do what we do in like expanding a great brand to, that attracts lots of deals. And then, um, you know, run through this kind of like investment model. And then we will emerge with great founders who are breaking out um, that we can serve really well through this awesome community like Angel Squad and, and so forth. So, um, yeah, like the, the thing that's been a bit of a surprise for me is even six years in, close to seven years soon, um, it's been very consistent since day one. Mm. I wonder what is your like so like did you guys already proven the track record I want to be aware of the time uh, we'll wrap up in like a minute or two so sure. I wonder when you guys first started building the track record like uh, to proving this model as like you know you guys are helping the founders like to observe their hustle as well as like helping them with like go to market to a degree i wonder um what, what does it look like at the beginning when you first raising the first bond what were you guys already like done like five company in your within your own like angel investment or like how oh, does yeah. it look like before you move <laughs> forward to um institutionalize your Investing. Yeah, we did something that I think is not going to be an answer that people like. So fund one, again, we had no brand, no reputation. Model is very weird and theoretical at that point. So what me and Elizabeth did was we decided to warehouse and sell at cost our very best personal angel investments into fund one. So I'll give an example of this. I was one of the first investors in Webflow, a company that's worth nearly mm -hmm. $5 billion right now as a seed investor. I put 20K in to that company in... 2013. And when we started the fund, I sold that position to the fund for $20,000. That position that basically said like, like I basically like said no to like tens of millions of dollars, basically, yeah. uh, like personally, because, and Elizabeth is too, we found our very best personal angel investment and warehouse and that cost into fund one, because at least we could sell to our fund one investors, like at least there are guaranteed winners in this portfolio, even if we're shitty investors, uh, like from day one, right? So our view was like, if we really believe in what we're going to do, let's just put a ton of our own personal like net worth behind it to show that we're in it and that can be rewarded to the earlier investors in our fund. And then like later on, like, you know, long-term we're all going to win. Like we'll, we'll make a lot of money someday if like this fund works out well, which we believe and like our investors will too and so forth. But staking our own very, very best assets into fund one was a good unblock for us and uh it's something i really challenge fund one investors listening to today because a lot of them have hesitated that i've spoken to to doing something like this because again it's hard to say no to millions and millions and millions of dollars that you could have received but for on for us it was the right choice and i do think that everyone's going to win at the end uh, as a result i love that on that note thank you so much eric um where can people find you yeah, well, check out hustlefund.vc if you are a founder that is interested in some early capital with a very kind team. You can learn more about our team there. You can find me at, at Eric Bond, which is uh, the name that you see uh, on the subtitle on my screen on Twitter and on LinkedIn as well. 
And uh, just a, a, a quick note too, just like if you do engage with us on hustlefund.vc, click on that what are you hustling button. We look at every single one of those deals as a team. They are not going to some sort of black hole. I promise you that. And then the last thing I'll mention, Grace, is thank you so much for this opportunity to come onto your podcast. Really appreciate what you're doing for this community and really honored that we actually get to serve founders together like this too. So please keep doing what you're doing. And I'm excited to see uh, your empire grow as well as you, as you, uh, you know, serve founders uh, like we do as partners. Thank you so much. Oh my God. Thank you so much, Eric. Um, by the way, okay, I'm ending stream. Okay. <laughs> by the way, I would love um so by the way